0: Alright, what we've decided to do is because it was requested again, uh, is to kind of do a series on uh divorce and remarriage. And what I want to do is I'm not gonna be able to it would be impossible for me to go through all the passages tonight and do some sort of major overview. I'm not gonna do that. Instead I'm gonna do a little bit like maybe a, a class more than um something that you know exhorts necessarily. And so uh, I hope this isn't, little, I hope it's not too academic. I'm, I'm going to try to make it to where it's not, but at the same time, we have to actually get into issues a little bit deeper than maybe this is usually discussed. And so I'm going to talk about, I think tonight, first and foremost, uh, the, the different views throughout history and also today, and, and maybe methodology as well and how we approach this issue, because I don't really think... Really, either one of those is discussed a whole lot. Uh, if people just assume they read a text, they think they know what it says, and, uh, and then they come to the conclusion of what they think is the best option or, or what have you. Um, but many times it's just a default into whatever the culture believes or whatever the religious culture believes, whatever they grew up with in church, whatever their church teaches, or whatever, basically allows for you know their friends and family to to uh, live in peace or whatnot. I, either way, and you know, not, not to say that everyone who just, who studies the issue is just kind of conformed by the culture alone, but uh, but I do think it kind of poisons the well when we live in a culture of divorce, both in and outside the church. To want to then somehow justify it, because in fact, if we come against that sort of thing, we're going to create a lot of conflict, and no one wants conflict in this day and age. Um, The problem is is that if it's a matter of holiness, if it's a matter of being creational, if it's a matter of doing good in the world, we actually then need to enter into conflict about it when we come to the right conclusion. So what I want to do, uh, first and foremost, is kind of dive in to a history of what the church has said about divorce and remarriage then we'll move on in in terms of the early church then we'll move on to the reformation Uh, we'll move on to the post-reformation and then to our own day and uh, discuss it a little a little bit but let's first now uh, come to God in a word of prayer Father, as we approach this subject, I, I pray that you give me a clarity of speech, that you might give your people a clarity of mind in understanding this issue. Uh, this is a very, uh, a very tough issue, Lord, because a lot of people are affected by this. Uh, many people might be offended by particular views, and therefore they don't want to even consider them. Lord, I pray you give us a heart of teachableness to your word that regardless of what it says, we will love what it says and teaches and seek to lift that up, both in the way we speak about it and in the way that we live. Father, we pray all of this to glorify you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, like I said, so uh, let's begin in the early church. Uh, Obviously, the earliest church is going to be the New Testament, but we're not going to uh, talk about that yet. We want to talk about after the New Testament, the things that people said. So what did the church believe ultimately throughout church history? Um, First and foremost, the early church seems to be almost uniform in their belief that one could not get divorced at all, except for adultery, but not remarried. Um, And so no matter what, one could get a divorce. And some, some fathers are just saying, you know, you can get a divorce. Other fathers are saying, if there's perpetual adultery, you must get a divorce. But all of them are saying, you cannot remarry. No remarriage. And that is pretty much the view for 1,500 years. I want to read you some quotes from the church fathers. And the earliest one I I think we can find that I can tell. Well, I I don't want to say the earliest one because dates are always, you know, whatever. Um, But I'll read you some of the earliest ones. And one of them is from the Shepherd of Hermas. So um, this is a conversation that the shepherd is is having uh, with the prophet. I say to him, sir, permit me to ask thee a few more questions. This is obviously an older translation. Speak on, he said. Sir, may I say if a man who has a wife that is faithful in the Lord, um and he detects that she becomes an adulteress or she is living in adultery or has committed adultery, does the husband sin in living with her? So he has discovered that she's committing adultery. is he sinning by staying with her? the, The answer is, so long as he is ignorant, he said, he does not sin. So if he doesn't know that she's in adultery, he does not sin. But if the husband knows of her sin and the wife does not repent, but continues in her sexual immorality and her husband lives with her, he makes himself responsible for her sin and an accomplice in her adultery. Now, not all of the fathers believe this. This is just one of the ideas. Others will say you remain with the person, but this is one of those ideas. What then, sir, and this is the important part that I think is more uniform, uh, shall the husband, what shall the husband do if the wife continues in adultery? He says, let him divorce her, And let the husband remain by himself alone. But if after divorcing his wife, he marries another, he will likewise commit adultery. If then, sir, I speak, after the wife is divorced, she repents and desires to return to her own husband, will she not be received? Certainly, he said. If the husband does not receive her, he sins and brings great sin upon himself. For this cause, you were enjoined to remain single, whether husband or wife, for in such cases, repentance is possible. Now, so the idea there is basically, um, he has to divorce her if she's going to perpetually be in adultery. In other words, divorce here isn't really what you think. It's more separation. He must separate from her so he does not partake in her sin. But if she repents, he is to receive her back. Um, and if he doesn't, he sins. And if he divorces her, meaning divorce, divorce, and marries someone else, he's committing adultery. And so he is to remain on his own until the wife repents. If she never repents, he just remains on his own uh, in celibacy. This is Justin Martyr. All who have been twice married by human law are sinners in the eye of our master. Um, Now, it's not talking about twice marriage as in, like, someone died and you married another. It's talking about twice marriage as in uh, you married uh, someone else and your spouse currently lives. Clement of Alexandria that the scripture counsels marriage and allows no release from the union is expressly contained in the law, you will not put away your wife except for the cause of fornication. And it regards as fornication the marriage of those separated while the other is alive. He who takes a woman who has been divorced commits adultery. Uh, this is Mark Minucius Felix. We gladly abide by the bond of a single marriage. In the desire of procreating, we know either one wife or none at all. Cyprian, a wife must not depart from her husband, or if she should depart, she must remain unmarried. Lactantius, he who marries a woman who is divorced from her husband is an adulterer. The Apostolic Constitutions. Now, these were, these were um, uh, things that the church, they're almost like an early confession of the church in terms of faith and practice and whatnot. And the Lord says, What God has joined together, no human is to separate. For the wife is the partner for life, united by God into one body from two. However, he who divides back into two, that body has become one. He is the enemy of the creation of God and the adversary of his providence. If a layman divorces his own wife and takes another, or if he marries one who is divorced by another, let him be excommunicated. So I want you to notice, now this, again, the Apostolic Constitution is not just some father talking. Um, now, you might have a father addressing it, but many people, the reason why they're called the Apostolic Constitutions many people thought, many of the fathers thought, many of the church considered it as though it was the very teaching passed on from the apostles to that that day. And so if a layman divorces his own wife and takes another, or if he marries someone who was divorced by someone, now these are from the words of Christ uh, directly, let him be excommunicated. Uh, I want you to notice, it's not just, well, we kind of uh, frown on that, And it's not ideal, uh, but, you know, we're all sinners. This is what you're going to get later on in the Reformation and beyond. But that's not what you get in the early church. Uh, It's, no, you can actually obey this, and if you don't, you're going to be excommunicated. Because then we cannot partake in your adultery. Tertullian, being a heretic, I think he's talking about Marcion here, I'd have to go back and look. By his very nature, he holds to the view of remarriage. They can get remarried. Origin, but now contrary to what was written, even some of the rulers of the church have permitted a woman to marry even when her husband was living, doing what is contrary to what was written. For it is said, a wife is bound so long as her husband lives. Now I want you to notice We may not consider origin to be all that great, but I want you to notice what he says. He says, but now, contrary to what was written, even some of the rulers of the church have permitted a woman to marry, even when her husband was living, doing what is contrary to what is written. For it is said a wife is bound so long as her husband lives. So it's indicating that some of the elders um, are not allowing... Now, I believe it's elders. Again, I have to go back and look at the context of this. It could be, he could be talking about secular rulers. I think he's not, though. I actually think he's talking about elders. I could be wrong. Again, I, I don't have Origins work on this particular one, so I don't want to say definitively. But my point is, is that they, he's condemning those as a part of this larger church understanding of divorce and remarriage of those who allow someone to marry after a divorce has taken place. Jerome, Jerome, who translated the the, uh, Latin Vulgate, I find joined to your letter of injuries a short paper containing the following words. Ask him, that is me, whether a woman who has left her husband on the ground that he is an adulterer and sodomite has found herself compelled to take another, may in the lifetime of him whom she first left be in communion with the church without doing penance for her fault. As I read the case... Put I recall the verse they make excuses for their sins. We are all human and all indulgent to our own faults, and what our own will leads us to do we attribute to a necessity of nature. Now he's quoting people. This is people the way that people argue, well, you know, we're all fallen, that sort of thing. It is as though a young man were to say, I am overborne by my body. The glow of nature kindles my passions. The structure of my frame and its reproductive organs call for sexual intercourse. Or again, a murderer might say, I was in want. I stood in need of food. I had nothing to cover me. If I shed the blood of another, it was to save myself from dying of cold and hunger. "'Tell the sister, therefore, who thus inquires of me concerning her condition, "'not my sentence, but that of the apostle. "'Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, "'how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. "'For the woman which has an has an, has a husband is bound by the law to her husband "'so long as he lives, but if the husband is dead, "'she is loosed from the law of her husband.' So then if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. And in another place, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. The apostle has thus cut away every plea and has clearly declared that if a woman marries again while her husband is living, she is an adulteress. You must not speak to me of the violence of a ravisher, a mother's pleading, a father's bidding, the influence of relatives, the insolence and intrigues of servants, household losses. A husband may be an adulterer or a sodomite. He may be stained with every crime and may have been left by his wife because of his sins. Yet he is still her husband. And so long as he lives, she may not marry another. The apostle does not promulgate this decree on his own authority, but on that of Christ who speaks in him. For he has followed the words of Christ in the gospel. Whoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. What he says, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery, whether she has put away her husband or her husband has put away her. The man who marries her is still an adulterer. Wherefore the apostles, seeing how heavy the yoke of marriage was thus made, said to him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. And the Lord replied, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. And immediately by the instance of three eunuchs, he shows the blessedness of virginity, which is bound by no carnal tie. And then again, Jerome says in another place, it is commanded that when the first wife is dismissed, a second may not be taken while the first lives. Ambrose, no one is permitted to know a woman other than his wife. The marital right is given you for this reason, lest you fall into the snare and sin with a strange woman. If you are bound to a wife, do not seek a divorce for you are not permitted while your wife lives to marry another Again, he says, you dismiss your wife, therefore, as if by right, and without being charged with wrongdoing, and you suppose it is proper for you to do so because no human law forbids it. No human law forbids it. And this is countercultural. Roman law completely allows you to divorce, allows the woman to divorce the husband, the husband to divorce the wife. Uh, you can get divorced for any, any, anything almost, and, and this is completely counter to that. But divine law forbids it. Anyone who obeys men ought to stand in awe of God. Hear the law of the Lord, which even they who propose our laws must obey. What God has joined together, no man is to separate, i.e. no man is to divorce. Augustine, neither can it rightly be held that a husband who dismisses his wife because of fornication and marries another does not commit adultery. For there is also adultery on the part of those who, after the repudiation of their former wives because of fornication, marry others. This adultery, nevertheless, is certainly less serious than that of the man who dismisses their wives for reasons other than fornication and and takes other wives. Therefore, when we say whoever marries a woman dismissed by her husband for reasons other than fornication commits adultery, undoubtedly we speak the truth. But we do not thereby acquit of this crime the man who marries a woman who was dismissed because of fornication. We do not doubt in the least that both are adulterers. We do indeed pronounce him as an adulterer who dismissed his wife for cause other than fornication and marries another, nor do we thereby defend from the taint of this sin the man who dismissed his wife because of fornication and marries another. We recognize that both are adulterers, though the sin of one is more grave than that of the other. No one is so unreasonable to say that a man who marries a woman whose husband has dismissed her because of fornication is not an adulterer, while maintaining that a man who marries a woman dismissed without the ground of fornication is an adulterer. Both of these men are guilty of adultery. Now, there are... Countless examples of the Father saying this, it is uniform, it is unanimous, it is unanimous for fifteen hundred years. This is what the church taught. this is what the church told people. This is what the church excommunicated people for. Uh, it was the church teaching if you didn 't like it, then you just cannot be part of the church. You could do something else other than being a Christian in communion with the church of course you 're not communion with the church you 're not a Christian so Uh, This was it. That was it. Um, Today, this position is held by some people like Gordon Wenham and William Heth in a a book called Jesus and Divorce. And there are various people who hold uh, this position. And so we see that that's in the first part of the history of the church in the largest part of the history of the church. uh, You have a uniform position on divorce and remarriage. After this, we're going to uh, enter into the early Reformation and then the the later Reformations, of course, as well. And uh, we'll start with Luther. So um, part of the things that occur when you have Reformation is you have a, a good assessment of things that may have been wrong in the church that kind of went awry, in the Middle Ages and whatnot. But inevitably what happens is you end up critiquing things that are good and throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and particularly those things that you don't like that you want more freedom on. It's very important to understand that if you are rebelling against false doctrine, that you make sure that your rebellion is a good rebellion and it doesn't take hold in your flesh so that you rebel against things that actually are biblical. Uh, You're rebelling against things that you actually just... You you just want a greater freedom, and so you're rebelling for that reason. Not because you've seen the Bible to be teaching something else. Uh, I say this because it's going to become very clear that a lot of these guys just don't like the restriction on divorce and remarriage. And they're going to start to come up with excuses... As to why you can get a divorce and why you can get remarried. And they're not from Scripture. As much as people are trying to take from Scripture, they're putting new definitions on what marriage is for, new definitions on what a real marriage really is, um, new contexts on things. I mean, just, you know, they're trying to restrict things, to, restrict marriage to, you know, it, it, the rightful use. So if, if you don't fulfill your covenant vows in marriage, then you really don't have a marriage and it can be dissolved, I mean, all that sort of thing. Um, So, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about methodology and how we approach uh, the scriptures. But in Luther, essentially, you're going to get in all of them this, what I think is is a double speak, which is you're going to get this marriage is so great and marriage should never be dissolved. And and marriage is, it's God's ideal and it's what God wants us to do. And we should never do anything but be with one spouse for life as long as they live. Um, and that—that's what God wants. It's holy. It's—it's it's good. It's just, you know filled with favor and just it's awesome. And then you're going to get a complete turnaround. But we live in a fallen world, and uh, things aren't perfect. And therefore, we've got to kind of just you know live in this fallen world. And um and and so in some cases, marriage can be dissolved. Now it starts with using Jesus's words in Matthew. Uh, when he talks about, you you know, in, in, with the exception of sexual immorality, the word porneia, which we'll talk about much later in this series. Um, he talks about the fact that, well, adultery, Luther talks about adultery, is the grounds that God, that Christ gives. Um, now, of course, that's interpreting porneia to be adultery, and that's, that's disputable. Um, but that's how he takes it. And the church, of course, before him took it that way, to be adultery, And so he takes it that way as well. But what he's gonna say is essentially that um, the other person is completely free from the obligation, uh, not because man has divorced them, because man may not divorce them here, but God has divorced them if an adultery has taken place. So the person has committed adultery against you, has divorced you. And so since they've divorced you, now, here's the leap in logic. Since they've divorced you, you're free to remarry. And so, and so there's no uh, obligation to remain, and uh, the, the person is free to, to remarry. Um, he also then, from that, expanded into the idea that, well... You know, why would someone abandon their spouse? Well, really, that's kind of an adultery, and it's probably for adultery. So abandonment, too, is also uh, in there. And it's kind of like, well, where are you getting the abandonment idea <laughs> in Scripture? And uh, I think a lot of people try to pull it out of 1 Corinthians 7. Again, we'll look at these texts later on in the series. But uh, but ultimately, he's, uh, he's starting to expand now what the reasons wh- where you can get a divorce and therefore, in his mind, get remarried. Um, he believed that, uh, if a Christian was being hindered religiously by someone, you can get a divorce and remarried. Um, let's see, uh, anger. If, if someone was angry, uh, you know, constantly just living in the misery of someone who gets angry all the time, you can get a divorce and remarried. I don't know how that's connected to adultery, but I, you know, as long as you're expanding them, I guess it just keeps going. Um, if a husband and wife cannot live together harmoniously, so irreconcilable differences. So what you have in Luther is, and, and here's the issue, Luther doesn't believe that marriage is a church issue at all. He doesn't believe that Christians really should say anything about it. Really, it's, just, it's a civil matter. It's a state matter. And so the only, the only reason Jesus comments on it is he's just talking about an abuse of the state uh, in, in the community, covenant community, but he doesn't really care about divorce and remarriage after that. Um that's a hard argument to make especially when you get Paul repeating it but then he says Paul is just repeating Jesus for abuses or whatever. So in reality Luther really does down deep believe that you can get divorced and remarried for all sorts of reasons. Um you come to Calvin, Calvin's a little stricter than Luther. Um he believes you can get divorced for adultery. Um I believe Calvin also, though, then includes other things besides that. And so even though he says things like the unbelieving, or for being an unbeliever as well, he says the unbelieving party makes a divorce with God rather than with her partner, because uh, he's viewing the adulteress this way. Um, he makes the statement, the wicked forbearance of magistrates makes it necessary for husbands to put away unchaste wives because adulterers are not punished. And so this is where you have, again, the argument, the understanding that in Calvin, and you're going to see this later on, that's really argued in a lot of places, that when someone commits adultery, they're supposed to be put to death. If they're not put to death, that's the civil magistrate's fault, not the spouse's fault. And so the spouse is free to remarry as though that person is dead. The fact that they're not dead and the punishment of the adultery then will be placed on the civil magistrate, not on the the individual. Now, uh, that's an interesting argument. You're actually not required to put your spouse to death in the Old Testament. I don't know if Calvin ever even deals with that. Uh, And so actually the civil magistrate's, aren't required to do that, but at the request of the husband, they are in in the Old Testament. And so if Calvin is saying that you've requested your spouse to uh, be put to death and and she's not or he's not, then you're free to remarry. Then I guess that would somewhat try to be consistent with uh, those laws in the Old Testament. But you see this idea then that really, really Calvin is saying the person who remarries is committing adultery, but... God's going to judge the civil magistrate for your adultery. Interesting concept there. Uh, you know, I, I, that's, uh, yeah. Um, ultimately, then you, you can go ahead and sin in that regard, because really it's not your sin. It's the civil magistrates, even though you're the one getting remarried. Uh, Calvin also then expanded from adultery, just like Luther, to abandonment, um, to uh, issues of like if, if someone was impotent uh, and therefore you can share the, the marriage bed. Um, physical infirmity. So if someone got sick, what, what a lovely thing to teach. If someone gets sick, you can divorce them and remarry someone else. Uh, you know, but again, I mean, because, you know, marriage is, uh, you don't want any misery in marriage. I mean, if you're, if you're miserable the rest of your life, God doesn't want that, right? This is almost kind of, you know, I don't want to blame this on the reformers. It may seem absurd to people, but let me just say real quick. I do sense a hint within all these guys, as you read them, of almost like a very kernel of a beginning of a health and wealth type understanding of God certainly wouldn't want you to be. Mis- Some of them flat out say it. God would not want you to live in misery, uh, which is a really odd idea because anywhere else they'll say, "Oh yeah, no, we're about to, we're about suffering and all that." It, it really is an inconsistency even with their own theology. But but there is that hint that well, you know, it seems unjust though. It seems like you know God would be condemning them to misery. Um. And it's like, well, uh, okay, well, sin condemns us all to misery. That's what sin does. If someone sins against you and murders you, why should you have to give up the rest of your life? But obviously you do, because that's what sin does. It doesn't harm just the person sinning. Sin harms other people. That's what's so evil about it. And so, yeah, someone may have committed adultery on you. Why should you pay the rest of your life? Yeah, it's unfair. They did something horribly evil to you. But that doesn't prevent the fact that you need to now obey God and live in holiness and pursue God in the way that he He commanded. Now, we'll study what it is that God commanded. Maybe the Reformers are right. Maybe the early church is right. We'll go over the passages and we'll discuss all that. Uh, who's right, who's not, what needs to be tweaked, all that sort of thing. Well, in England, of course, with the English Reformation, uh, really starting with, you have Tyndale and... and uh, and uh, you've got Henry and you've got Cranmer and all those guys. A lot of it surrounds Henry's divorce of Catherine. And, uh, and so really people making an excuse because they want to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of these Protestants making an excuse to where Henry's perfectly fine. Because, I mean, who wants to follow a guy as the head of the Anglican Church uh, who's in adultery? I mean, you don't want to follow him then. He's in adultery and you would partake in his sin. And so they've got to make a reason for why it's not really an adultery. And so um, uh, Tyndale argues that divorce was possible only because of adultery. And uh, because the law stipulated the death of the adulterer, and you can see this kind of come out now, the innocent party was not under bondage to the original marriage. Uh, Desertion was also a just cause in Tyndale's opinion. Uh, Again, he saw it tied to adultery in, in a way. I'm not sure, it's kind of loosely tied. I mean, it's kind of a, an odd argument to make. So, of course, then later on, the Westminster Confession, which comes out of England, is going to argue uh, certain things about marriage. So it'll say, you know, marriage is uh, to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of the husband and wife. I want you to notice that there's a lot of redefinition of what marriage is for. Um, and a lot of it has to do with basically having a good life. Um, um, it's ordained for like affection and companionship, and it's just for for you know good feelings. And it, it's it really it really does. Do, and, and they'll take the older of what the church is taught that it's about procreation and children and things like that. Um, but in a committed relationship to one another, but ultimately it's about it's about providing something. That, uh, that gives the individual um, some sense of, of, uh, of delight. And again, this is where I think there's a kernel of the whole health and wealth thing, that marriage ultimately, all, although all of these reformers would say, yeah, it's for the glory of God, it really doesn't seem like that when they talk about marriage. It seems more like marriage is really about your personal pleasure and delight. And when it's no longer pleasurable and delightful, well, well, you should get rid of it. And we can connect that somehow to adultery. We can connect that somehow to abandonment. And, and, and once you, once you connect abandonment to adultery, you can start expanding everything because everything's abandonment then, right? I mean, you've got emotional abandonment and uh, spiritual abandonment and all sorts of abandonment and real, you know, companion companionship abandonment and, and sexual abandonment. And 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 at that point. Um, really you could just make up any reason and you'll see eventually people do (laughs) that really it's for any reason that you're dissatisfied. You can go ahead and get, uh, divorced and remarried. So I want you to know that that's even here in the Westminster confession, uh, that people are going on. Um, so marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with a holy seed and for preventing of uncleanness it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of the Christians to marry only in the Lord. And therefore such as profess the true reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists who are Roman Catholics or other idolaters, neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity uh, or affinity forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be lawful by any law of man or consent of parties." Um, the man may not marry any of his wife's kindred nearer in blood. And so that's about adultery, right? Uh, or or uh, incest. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage, given just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce. And after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. There we go with the the civil magistrate thing. So as the, if they were dead, because the civil magistrate didn't actually do their job. Because at this point, people aren't really killing people uh, for adultery, you know, unless you're married to Henry, uh, and then you you would be. But um, but usually that's not the case. The the civil magistrate isn't killing people uh, for adultery. Well, of course, from all of this, you start to get the things that like you know you have in John Milton. So John Milton wrote this work um I believe it's called uh De Regno Christi or something. And um and in it he he talks about divorce and remarriage. And basically Milton is going to he's going to go all out. It's going to be basically, you know, for for any anything almost. Um Milton said that uh the marriage is ordained for the husband and wife to help one another, be more devout, to generate mutual fellowship and love. Now notice that those are, those are put over things like procreation. Uh, lastly, to avoid sexual sin. If a marriage is less than God intended and is devoid of happiness, then it is not of God's institution and therefore it is not marriage so if, it, if it does not, if it's not a happy marriage, it's not a real marriage, and you can go ahead and get divorced and remarry marry someone else to make you happy uh, If a marriage is barren um, if it's uh you know difficult for a man to divorce his wife, uh, he would be justified in doing so, even you know he, he's right in doing so if uh if she can't have children <clears throat> um Milton did say that you should cleave to your wife as long as she was... Now, notice this. This is from Genesis 2.24. Um, notice the change from 2.24. 20, 2.24 says that uh, he'll he'll cleave to his wife, right? And uh, the two become one flesh. And then Jesus from that said, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So they've become two flesh. They're no longer one. No longer one. Um he said that one should cleave to his wife as long as she was what a wife should be. And uh, he asked, can any law or command be so unreasonable as to make men cleave to calamity, to ruin, to perdition? So in other words, if you're just not having a good marriage and you're not happy, you're free to get a divorce and remarry. Now, ironically, probably the stricter person out of all the reformers, quote unquote, Wesley's not really a reformer, but I mean, he's a Protestant, right? So out of all the Protestants, uh, Wesley ties it to polygamy and says that if you have a spouse living at the same time, then that's essentially polygamy and polygamy is condemned. So he kind of goes a different route than what the Lord goes, which is the adultery route and what, what people have gone through in the past. It says, all polygamy is clearly forbidden in these words, wherein our Lord expressly declares that for any woman who has a husband alive, to marry again is adultery. So he does pick up on the adultery issue, but because it's polygamy. Uh, The same, of course, held true for a man. And uh, Wesley did not allow divorce on the grounds of cruelty as the others would have. They would have seen that as some sort of abandonment. The only ground was adultery, that was it. And uh, there was no case in which the scripture uh sorry, and this is where this is the Protestant part of Wesley. There's no scripture that forbids the innocent party from remarrying once an an adultery has occurred. So that's where he kind of picks up a middle ground there. He's stricter, but he's still not as strict as you would have in the early church. Now, um What I want to say is this. What I want to do with the rest of our time is talk about methodology and how we're going to approach this subject. Because there are multiple views. You can see, uh, you know, in the, in the last part, I, I think you, you have a, a uniformity of views in the church. Suddenly from the 16th century on, you've got, I think, what is rather chaotic. Um, but you have, you have some conformity in thinking a little bit. Um, but obviously definitions of marriage are different and the reasons why you can get a divorce and remarried are different Um, because I think people are using logic more than they're using the scriptures. This is more logic than exegesis. Um, We're going to see that as we go through that you can't actually tie in a lot of these things to the scripture, but people are reasoning they're giving their own definitions rather than biblical definitions of marriage, reasoning from that, that it's okay, taking a leap of logic, frankly, that it's okay, therefore, to divorce people for those reasons if marriage is not fulfilled uh, in the way that the scripture defines it and what they, they're saying scripture defines it the way they're defining it. Um, and so a lot of logic is being used. Here's the problem. Logic is unbound by the scripture. Something I learned when I was younger... And at Trinity, I used to have these huge conversations hours and hours long uh, every week with my friends who are in philosophy of religion. And I, I realized that, that one of them that at that point, uh, we, we had been discussing things for like a, you know, a year, just hours and hours long, sometimes every night. I mean, just a, a lot of a lot of conversation. And I realized what could be done is through logic, you can actually form a coherent system that is unbiblical, that, that scripture actually rejects, but it can make total sense to you. And so that essentially is, I think, a warning that we should say, okay, well, I may have a logical system. It may, it may make sense to me. In fact, it, maybe it's the only thing that makes sense to me. But if it's not biblical... We need to be careful. Now, of course, a lot of people don't. will never say their logic isn't biblical. What they'll do is they'll take their idea and they'll eisegete it back into Scripture. They'll force it in there. They'll look for, for Scripture somehow that, that support their viewpoint. It's very dangerous to approach the Scripture that way. So before we talk about any methodology at all, what I first and foremost want to talk about is I want to talk about, one, the... Uh, methodology of exegesis instead of eisegesis as our hermeneutic. And two, the methodology of our disposition spiritually. First and foremost, exegetical, that's more of a skill task, right? That's just a matter of actually knowing exegesis well, being able to go to the scripture and pull out what's there, look to see if the other views actually conform to what you've pulled out, what, what, what's actually in scripture, what, what they might be putting in that's not there, what, what uh, you know, they might be replacing that's there, that sort of thing. And so as we approach these texts, I, I want us to do so not trying to force our views in them, but rather say, what do they say? And this goes into my second methodological concern that has to do with our spiritual disposition Um, This is very important. A lot of people don't really talk about this. You don't learn about this in seminary. Some people may say it. You may have some professors talk about it. But I think it makes all the difference in the world for you to see what's truly in scripture if you come to it with a disposition of no matter what it says, I will love. Not I will just grudgingly submit to it even though I hate it. You're never gonna come to the truth that way. God will never open your eyes that way. Seeing, you will not see. Hearing, you will not hear. Why? Because you have a spirit of stubbornness to believe what you want to believe over what God may actually say to you. Now, maybe what he'll say to you is what you believe, but you don't actually know that. And it's likely you being a sinner in a fallen uh, society, And in a fallen church that seems kind of scattered in its thinking and that frankly has led to a lot of chaos, you might actually hold a wrong view. It might actually be bad and you need to change it. But if you don't approach the scripture with the understanding, the teachable nature of saying whatever this says, I will believe it and I will do it to the ruin of my plans to the ruin of my relationships, if so be it. Whatever this says, I will submit to it in gratefulness that God has told me the truth, gratefulness that even though it might be a war to hold a certain position, uh, ultimately it will lead to shalom, and joy and love, love of God, love of his people, love of his word and the truth. Why does God condemn anyone because they didn't believe the truth? Why do men not come to Christ because they love the darkness rather than the light? What is the light in John? It's the truth. We are enslaved by the demonic through falsehood. It is very important to come with a disposition, understanding that we are slaves to the demonic. That what we believe is probably not true. That we probably have been lied to even in our religious settings, even in our churches. And at the end of the day, maybe some things our churches are correct and we'll see those things from scripture and maybe some things aren't. But if you just say to yourself, "Now nah, I'm good. I already understand it. That's fine. This study will be of no use to you. The Bible is of no use to you. You already know what's true according to your own mind. But I would submit to you that that is being hard hearted. And stiff-necked, which is what God calls his people who are leading, who are walking into ruin. So my encouragement to you is that when you approach the scripture, it's not with an attitude of, well, whatever it says, I don't want it to say that. And I refuse to believe that no matter what. That's just your rebellion then. You shouldn't approach scripture on any issue that way. I don't care what the issue is. You should be in submission to God, loving submission to where you open his word and you say, whatever this says, wherever it takes me, however hard it may be, I will submit to you, receive this in joy and goodness and love. That to me is more important than your exegesis, although your exegesis is pretty important. But if you have exegetical skill and you don't approach this this way and you're approaching it because you want to establish a position that you've held a long time or your church has held or something you've taught and you don't want to like, have to you know, eat crow now, then the Bible is of no use to you. Whatever your first impressions were or your last impressions were, you're just, you're set in stone then and you cannot be changed. I hope you were right. Because fornicators and adulterers, God will damn, the writer of Hebrews says. And you may be teaching people to be fornicators and adulterers. Maybe you should be concerned if you're a pastor about that. As we approach scripture, as we approach these texts, this is going to be a hard subject. It's going to be hard in terms of the exegesis. It's going to be hard in terms of um, coming to the realization of something that maybe we don't want to believe. And it's going to be definitely hard to live out if you find yourself in this situation. I think there's joy in obedience. I think it's a good thing that we're being called to, and that frankly, it's usually the hard thing, as it's been said in numerous times before, usually the hard thing and the right thing are the same thing. Usually, not always, but usually. So as we approach this, our methodologies are important. One, it's going to be exegetical. I don't, I don't think that that's going to be disputable. Two, it should be in our spiritual disposition, Three, this is more of a kind of a a more detailed methodological approach. I I think that we need to start with the New Testament, not the Old. Uh, Because in the Old Testament, God was looking over things. I mean, obviously, God allows for polygamy in the Old Testament. Do any of you believe in polygamy? Uh, He allows uh, for prostitution in the Old Testament. He doesn't like it. He always says he doesn't like these things, but he allows them. He doesn't kill prostitutes in the law. Does prostitution okay? Is the New Testament okay with prostitution? No. No. So uh, that's not where we get our ethic of marriage. We don't get it from the texts in the Old Testament that talk about polygamy or all of that sort of thing. We're going to get it from creation, the creation mandate, where where Christ pulls it. But ultimately, it's going to be New Testament texts. And so we will talk about the Old Testament text after we talk about the New Testament. But the Old Testament needs to be put in light of the New Testament, not the New Testament in light of the Old. That's very important. Otherwise, you are going to end up with polygamy. Otherwise, you will end up with Paul saying that the overseer needs to be the husband of one wife. But if you put that in the context of polygamy, he just means he needs to be married to whoever he's married to, whether it's multiple wives or not. You see how that works? See how you can change what's said? Whereas if you put the Old Testament in context of the New, you see that polygamy was never God. What God desired, uh, He used it in various ways. He looked over it, but ultimately His His um, it was from stubbornness of men's hearts. All of that, but ultimately He calls us now to the complete holiness of the creation account, where the two will become one flesh, and Jesus makes it the two that become one flesh, not just a man becoming one flesh, and therefore the husband of one wife, and so. It is absolutely important that we go from the New Testament to the Old and not vice versa. You go from the fullest revelation we have and the fulfillment of holiness, not when it was lacking. Uh, That just seems, I think, pretty obvious. But again, in the context of that, then we'll see that even the Old Testament does not really, uh, it's not really okay with with, uh, divorce and remarriage, and God was never really okay with divorce and remarriage. So those are the methodologies we're going to follow. Um, I want us to be careful about uh, twisting scripture to meet what we already believe. And I I want to comment now on this idea, and this will be what I close with, the idea that, well, we're in a fallen culture, and there are a lot of different views, and who really knows what's the truth. And so, you know, just live and let live, and, and God will sort it out on Judgment Day. One, I just quoted you the passage where fornicators and adulterers God will damn. And that's what judge means there. He doesn't mean he's going to like slap him on the wrist. Uh, he's the avenger. Uh, he's taking that language from the law. It's talking about damnation. Um, two, we want to know what's holy and right now uh, to be in a right relationship with God. Three, we want to make sure that we're not causing others to sin by joining with us in fellowship. Because if we're in adultery, then those who don't, don't excommunicate us, don't shun us in, in our perpetual adultery, uh, they're in adultery. They're also in, in our sin. Um, finally, we don't want to do what's chaotic. Because we know that all sin destroys things in the world. Not just in the, it doesn't just bring eternal damnation. It destroys things here and now. And so it's important for us to know. Now, I do want to comment then on the idea that, well, you know, who really knows the truth because there are multiple opinions? I want to show you that that actually is relativism. And you might say, oh, well, no, I believe there's an absolute truth. We just don't know it. I mean, it's, we just can't discover it. The scripture's not clear. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, well, it's kind of important that the scripture be clear on something like that. But I want you to notice that relativism isn't the idea that there's no absolute truth. That is not what relativism... Is. There are radical forms of it, but relativism, relativism that's popularly held is that there is an absolute truth. We just may not know it. You have your idea of what it is. You have, that guy has his idea. We all have different opinions. Who really knows? Let's all get along and be friendly. And I want you to notice that that is more postmodern than it is scriptural. The idea that well, other people hold these different views... And therefore, it's okay for me to just say, ah, you know, who knows? That's not acceptable. God has clearly spoken in his word. And it is important that we actually understand that God has clearly spoken and it is not God's word that's confusing at the end of the day. It's really our unwillingness to accept God's word or our thinking that God's word is too radical for us and therefore we should adopt something else. And so then it becomes very muddy and gray because I really don't want it to be true. The second thing I want to say about that whole idea that, you know, well, we're fallen uh, and then, you know, we live in a fallen society. And so even though marriage for life is God's ideal, that's what God wants, ultimately we have to accept the fact that, you know what, uh, we got to live in this world and it's fallen. And, And, you know, again, God will sort it out on judgment day. That's actually the argument of the heretics in Second Peter. I want you to notice how everyone argues that way. Well, you know, uh, heterosexuality, that's God's ideal, but we live in a fallen world, and so we, the church just has to say, you know, homosexuality is okay. Uh, it's not okay, it's not the ideal, but we'll accept it. You know, we can't excommunicate because we're all fallen sinners anyway, right? Uh, Pornography, you know, people are going to practice pornography anyway. So it's like, ah, you know, the church should just say pornography is, is, even though it's not okay, it's not God's ideal, let's go ahead and do it anyway. I mean, you could do this literally with any sin. And the heretics in 2 Peter do it. And Peter's response is, no. God has given you everything. You partake of the very divine nature. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Don't give me the argument, oh well, we're fallen, so we cannot obey. Oh well, we're fallen, so we can't live out a holiness to God. That, let's say someone commits adultery on you and divorces you, and you need to leave you need to live celibately, and that the, the early church was correct. Well, the argument you, you can counter with is uh, let, let's see if it's biblical and we'll draw that out. But the argument you should not counter with is, well, we live in a fallen world. And so that's that That just seems too extreme of an ideal. Even though it is the ideal, uh, we should just accept those who don't meet it. Now you're arguing like the heretics argue. And Peter has to refute in Second Peter saying, no, no, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Uh, you partake of the very divine nature. You have the power of God to live out whatever God commands you to do. He commands Peter to walk on water. Peter can walk on water. Can men walk on water? No. Men joined to the nature of God through Jesus Christ can walk on water if God commands them to walk on water. That's the point. If you doubt that, that's when you sink. Because you lack faith in God, not because, oh well, we're fallen and can't do it otherwise. Uh, In Christ, you can do anything you are commanded to do and fulfill holiness. Um. Finally So I, I know that I said that was the final This is my final thing that's going to be real quick Th- This is a, a general hermeneutical principle We do not Interpret the ambiguous um, As the, the Context For the clear So in other words we, we interpret the ambiguous Statements in light of the Clear teaching not vice versa. This is absolutely important when you exegete anything, if you're trying to find any sort of issue. And what you'll notice as we go through is that there's a lot of debate where people are trying to argue over the ambiguities of either Matthew or 1 Corinthians 7, Matthew 8, uh, 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. And the ambiguities are things like, well, what does pornea mean? uh you know uh, what what does uh what does um you're not obligated mean in 1 Corinthians 7 rather than looking at the clear statements like paul makes that like while the husband lives the woman's going to be committing uh, going to be considered an adulteress she's free if he dies that's pretty clear you're not obligated well there are different greek words used and we can sit here and argue all day but that's an ambiguity And you don't then try to then negate the clear statements with the ambiguity. Same thing in Matthew. Uh, It's really clear that Jesus is saying something that is just shocking to them. And now they have to argue that they can get a divorce at all. And yet, what do people want to argue about? They ignore all that and they want to talk about the nature of Nea. Uh, what's porn? Is it fornication, adultery? Is it incest? Is it this or that? And again, we can talk about all that, but at the end of the day, that's the ambiguous statement. The clear stuff is the rest of the passage. What God has put together, no man is to do- divorce. No man's to do it, period. That should end the discussion. You can't get a divorce. God's put it together, God's married you, God's joined you together. So no man has the authority, whether a civil authority or a husband or a wife or anyone else, to separate, to divorce. That's, the whole, that's very clear. And it's clear that that's what he's saying by the reaction he gets from the Pharisees and the disciples. And yet everyone wants to argue over porneia. So again, we will talk about those things, but I want you to notice that that is an inappropriate methodology. Like hermeneutics 101, you interpret the ambiguous in light of the clear, not vice versa. And so at the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter what porneia means uh, or, or if we can decipher what it means. It really doesn't matter if we can decipher what you know, you're know you not obligated means. It really doesn't matter because we can decipher what's clear and that will guide uh, what allows the ambiguities to actually mean? So that's that's all I want to say about the methodology that we're going to approach this subject. I don't know how many how many lessons we'll have in this series, but I do think that it's important to get all this down. Understand that just because there are multiple views today, uh, there weren't multiple views originally, and uh, and that uh, those multiple views aren't necessarily coming from scripture. Also, to understand how we should approach scripture, both spiritually, uh, being ready spiritually. Really, pr- I would pray about it. Uh, get yourself ready spiritually and really question yourself whether you're ready to receive things that you might find shocking or may condemn you or may condemn people you know. And you don't necessarily want to go there, but you're going to love it and you're going to go for it because you love God and the truth. And you know at the end of the day it's good and what you believe if it's false is wicked and a tool of the devil to destroy. And so ultimately that's what we're going for. We want to approach this sacred thing of marriage. We all agree it's sacred um, in some way and, uh, and approach it in a way to where we're going to treat it appropriately Uh, to where now we're we're going to um, honor God in whatever decision we make from the scriptures. And I want you to know that, you know, as a church, I I think we should be committed to wherever this takes us, that's the position we hold. Um, And and not be going back and forth and left and right because, well, you know, this guy said this and this guy said that. I, I pray that the scripture is clear through this. And that the understanding of right methodology will lead to the right conclusions of the study. And at least, you know, there might be rebellion out there still, no matter what. But at least I hope that if there's confusion, it'll clear up the confusion. It's not going to clear up the rebellion, but hopefully it'll clear up the confusion. Because I think that some people hold contrary views because they're confused. Confused about methodology, confused about exegesis, confused about you know, what they're supposed to do, they're trying to understand it, but they don't get it. And then you have other people who are just, they don't want to believe it. And they're looking for any excuse, and what have you. Um, But, uh, but yeah, and and I I say that to you, and to to end this way, um, that whatever we come up with, we love that I'm willing to do that with any position. I'm willing to say that, look, if, if it's, Divorce and remarriage for anything. If, if marriage is dissolved because we're in the eschaton now, we're in the new heavens and new earth, and there is no more marriage, and we're all just, you know, can just you know trade up with each other every five minutes, I'm willing to say, well, I'll, I'll choose to love that then and submit to God. Uh, if it's something in the middle, uh, like, well, there, there are five reasons for divorce or two reasons for divorce or three or whatever it may be, I'm willing to say if that's what the scripture teaches I will absolutely love that. I mean, I, I would maybe love that more because I would get a lot less uh, flack for uh, the position I hold. But then I also want you to agree with me that if it's, if it's something that seems radical to our minds because it's our sinful culture, it's a wayward church that has gone off um, the, the given path, that you will also love that and submit to it and try to live accordingly. So I'm willing to enter into this with you, and I've always been entering. That's the way I approach Scripture in general. I, I want to know what it says, whatever it may say. I'm not just looking to justify a position I hold. And I've I've changed positions before. I used to hold the position that was the reformer's position because I didn't know anything else. And as I studied more, I, I changed my mind. And so hopefully our minds are flexible, not to things of the world, but to God, that the Spirit of God can mold them uh, in the way that he desires. Let's go ahead and end in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word and we, we pray that you guide us now as we seek to interpret your word, understanding that language does have rules and, and I pray that we follow those rules so that we can understand what you're saying uh, and therefore be obedient to you and love you through obeying what you have commanded and love one another, Lord, by, by communicating truth to one another, and yes, Lord, even loving one another, if we have to excommunicate people who persist in unrighteousness and sin simply because they're stubborn and they don't want to be teachable, and, or, or you have cast a, a cloud over them and they just can't see it. <clears throat> They've been blinded by the devil, and I pray that we seek uh, their repentance uh, through excommunication, Lord, that they might, they, might be, uh, they might escape the snares of the devil and that whole thing. Father, I pray that you give people who hear this study the minds to follow it and, uh, and the willingness to submit to things and to love things that are difficult, but knowing that you have spoken them, loving them because we love you. Lord, we pray all these things again for your glory, for the praise of all your work in Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>